Welcome to the Afternoon Light Summer Series produced by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. In this summer series, you will hear presentations from our November 22 conference on Coming to Power, Learning to Govern and Gathering Momentum 1943-54. to In today's episode, you will hear from Dr. William Stoltz on the founding of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, followed by Dr. David Lee on economic management during the Korean War. Ladies and gentlemen, so my presentation today is on a somewhat unknown aspect of the Menzies legacy, the creation of Australia's secret intelligence service, our nation's foreign spy agency, which Menzies established 70 years ago. ASIS is a secret service in the British tradition, which includes the UK's SIS, or secret intelligence service, and other Western spy agencies. It carries out two related yet distinct sets of activities the stealing of secrets to create intelligence, and the conduct of activities to secretly shape and disrupt external events. The former we call espionage, the latter is typically referred to as covert action. Australian governments carried out secret intelligence collection even prior to Federation, but the idea of a dedicated secret intelligence service modelled on Britain's MI6 was first advocated to External Affairs Minister H.V. Evatt in approximately 1947. It was suggested to him by an enterprising young military officer named Alfred Deacon Brooks, the grandson of Australia's second Prime Minister. Evatt was unsupportive of Brooks's idea. He and Prime Minister Shifley were distrusting of men who dominated the British intelligence community. They would tussle extensively with MI6, MI5, the CIA in 1947 and 1948 over the issue of Soviet spies in the Australian government. And they regarded the British service, the British intelligence services, as being populated by the same type of entitled patricians who had flung Australia's working men against German machine guns in the Great War, or who in World War II conspired with Churchill to withhold Australia's uh, Middle East divisions from returning to the Pacific. The crisis of Soviet infiltration would eventually lead to the establishment of ASIO, Australia's domestic spy agency. While this was taking place, Menzies and Richard Casey were laying the groundwork for the, 19, for the 1949 election campaign, which would place a strong emphasis on anti-communism and national security. By 1947, Casey was the federal director of the Liberal Party. He would also eventually be pre-selected for the seat of La Trobe for the Liberal Party. He had served extensively overseas and in the 1920s had previously been embedded by Prime Minister Bruce in the UK cabinet and foreign offices as Australia's representative in London. Here he had seen firsthand the value of secret intelligence. In his capacity as federal director, he employed Alfred Brooks in October 1947 as, quote, a specialist officer on the staff of the federal secretariat to deal with foreign affairs, imperial defence and subversive activities. These were doubtless strange things for a political party to employ someone for, but it makes more sense when we consider the Liberal Party's agenda for the 1949 campaign. As we've heard, banning the Communist Party of Australia was one of the Liberal Party's central campaign commitments, and the proxy wars and geopolitical tensions of the early Cold War placed foreign affairs, if not front of mind for voters, definitely at the forefront for Menzies, Casey and other Liberal candidates who had held leadership positions throughout the Second World War. While preparing foreign affairs research papers for the party and working closely with Casey, Brooks would later express his desire to be pre-selected as a Liberal Party candidate for a Melbourne seat at the 1949 election, although this did not come to pass. We know that immediately after Menzies' election victory, 
Brooks advocated directly to Casey and Menzies to set up ACES in 1950, but it is quite possible that Brooks lobbied for ACES prior to the election win and while employed by the party. He had forward-leaning in putting the idea to Evett several years earlier, and it's almost inconceivable that he and Casey, if not Menzies, wouldn't have discussed the general idea of an Australian Secret Service prior to the election. It raises the following question. Could the establishment of ACES have been a secret election policy? Whether Menzies or Casey became firmly settled on the idea prior to being in government or discussed it more widely within the party is thus far unknown. However, I think it's fair to say that establishing ACES was a distinctly Liberal Party policy, not just because of Casey and Brooks's enthusiasm for the idea, but because it is difficult to conceive that Chifley's government would have set up ACES if they were re-elected. This is because of the poor relationship Chifley and Evett had with the British intelligence community, but also Evett's multiple rejections of the proposal to create an Australian Secret Service. As mentioned, the idea to establish ACES should be conceived of in the context of a wider agenda of national security reform undertaken by Menzies' government, which included the goal of banning the Communist Party, but also preparing Australia for a Third World War. Upon being elected, Casey was appointed as Menzies' Minister for National Development, not External Affairs, as one might have assumed, given his experience and passion for world affairs. That portfolio went to Percy Spender, so Casey's subsequent leadership within Cabinet for setting up ACES is a little strange. However, in this portfolio, we need to think of Casey as the minister responsible for preparing Australia for a third world war. At the time of the Menzies government coming to power, the Malayan emergency was taking place to Australia's near north, and the Korean War would break out shortly after in June 1950. Rehabilitating Japan was also still a huge focus for Australian, British and American foreign policy, and suspicion of what future path Japan might take was still very present. Nuclear weapons were proliferating and advancing at great speed. Australia's capacity to deal with its changing world required the rapid development of its fuel security, port infrastructure, mining and manufacturing, all of which fell into the national development portfolio under Casey. So too did policy consideration for Australia developing nuclear technology and infrastructure, remembering at this time Australia adopting nuclear weapons was still a distinct possibility. And the focus on developing Australia was not just about Australia's own security, it was about its contribution to allied efforts to shape the region. Therefore, by virtue of his portfolio, as well as his past interests, Casey was fixed on issues of strategy and geopolitics, which were closely affected by secret intelligence and covert activity. The importance of ACES to Menzies' national security agenda is evidenced by the fact that on the same day Menzies introduced the bill to ban the Communist Party of Australia, he meets with Casey, Spender, Philip McBride and Brooks to discuss how to take the idea to the full Cabinet. Casey briefed Cabinet on the proposal with the Malayan emergency as the context, describing how a communist insurgency so close to Australia's borders and impacting a Commonwealth territory, there was an urgent need for secret intelligence and covert operations. Cabinet agreed to explore how the agency should be set up with support from MI6, and Brooks is dispatched to the UK to learn how MI6 operates and is structured. At this stage, the exact scope of work and the structure of ACES is still contested within the civil service. The Department of Defence is initially of the view that any special operations function should rest with the military, while external affairs is resistant of the need for foreign intelligence altogether, believing that diplomatic reporting should be sufficient. In 1950, Menzies wrote to UK Prime Minister Clement Attlee saying, quote, I have decided to establish a secret intelligence service which, when organised, will operate in Southeast Asia and in Pacific areas adjacent to Australia. Recent developments in Asia and our near north make this a prudent and urgent measure. 
I trust that the establishment of an Australian service may in some small measure reduce the onerous worldwide commitments of the United Kingdom. While it would be a small boutique agency, ASIS nevertheless reflected the focus of Menzies' wider foreign policy, which was dedicated to the preservation of British power in the Asia-Pacific and the centrality of British power to the Cold War struggle for the region. In this sense, ASIS was envisaged as an empire agency that would plug into and support the intelligence needs not just of Australia, but of the wider British Commonwealth. Behind this was Australia's larger aspiration to lead in the formation of Commonwealth strategic decision-making related to its region. So, adding more to the intelligence picture would lend valuable decision-making leverage for the Australian government. But while Menzies and the Cabinet had decided in principle to establish ACES, the structure and scope of the service is contested for a year or so. The key contested details were, should ACES be responsible for covert action, or should that be with defence? Should it operate under a Foreign Service Act, as Percy Spender initially suggested? Who should be the responsible minister, defence or external affairs? And should ACES use diplomatic cover, that is to say, operating under the assumed identity of diplomats abroad? These issues were resolved, temporarily at least, when Casey took over as Minister for External Affairs, and he pushes for a final decision on the form ACES should take. The consensus decision emerged that the Defence Minister, in consultation with the External Affairs Minister and Prime Minister, via a special subcommittee of Cabinet, would be responsible for ACES's operations. ACES's officers would operate with diplomatic cover, including British cover, but its budget would be provided by Defence. Menzies finally created ACES through an order of the Governor-General's Executive Council on 13th of May 1952, not via an act as Spender had suggested. Alfred Brooks is made its first Director-General at just 32 years old. Creating ACES in this way, via an executive order and not an act, meant that the Prime Minister had it signed into being without informing Parliament. This not only reflected the high secrecy of the service, but also the often unilateral way Menzies wielded the executive power of the Prime Ministership when it came to national security decisions. Menzies did not regard it as necessary for ordinary members of Parliament to know that an Australian secret intelligence service had been established. Indeed, given his suspicions of some members of the Labor Party, he may not have trusted them with such knowledge. However, creating ACES without legislation had the potentially unlawful result of the government concealing the service's funding in the defence budget to keep it secret from Parliament. Alongside the executive order creating ACES, Menzies issued an accompanying top-secret directive or charter explaining in more detail the agency's functions. In his first top-secret directive to Brooks in 1952, Menzies outlined that the purpose of ACES would be the collection of secret intelligence, espionage, and the carrying out of special operations that, quote, afford no proof of the instigation of the government, what we describe today as covert action. Importantly, the directive also instructed that ACES would work closely with SIS and that Brooks would have direct access to relevant cabinet ministers, essentially allowing him to go around departmental secretaries. ACES starts small in 1952, initially with nine officers, but it had extensive access to MI6's intelligence products and stations in the region. ACES would eventually establish stations of its own, the first being in Jakarta, Tokyo and Bangkok, and another office in Australia for debriefing returning expatriates. Casey would initially revel in being in charge of this agency. On his travels abroad, MI6 found Casey to be the most enthusiastic visitor, and he frequently hosted visiting MI6 and CIA officers at his farm in Berwick, where it was rumoured that he allowed ACES to use his private airstrip for unregistered black flights. 
As ASIS expanded, it created a covert radio station outside Darwin in 1953 to receive encoded communications and, over time, support the interception of neighbouring countries' signals. By 1954, ASIS had 19 intelligence officers and 22 supporting staff. Its close relationship with MI6 was added to with the first CIA liaison officer assigned to ASIS. Despite its steady growth, Brooks would run into trouble with his bureaucratic counterparts almost immediately. These particularly included Frederick Shedden, Secretary of Defence, Alan Watt, Secretary of External Affairs, and Arthur Tang, the Deputy Secretary of External Affairs. The main issues at play were responsibility for ASIS's funding and its use of diplomatic cover. ASIS had a somewhat confusing structure. It resided in the Department of Defence under the cover of the Central Plans section, and it had its funding hidden in the defence budget. But its officers were to work abroad out of British and Australian embassies and high commissions while using diplomatic cover, but they would often only be accountable to MI6 officers. Initially, this structural separation from ASIS was looked on as a good thing from the Mandarin's external affairs and defence, who wanted little to do with ASIS. But this would quickly change. Alfred Brooks was a remarkable man. His experiences of Australia's region during the war made him incredibly worldly for his age. He was confident, cool under pressure and charismatic, many of the features of an effective spymaster. However, his desire for swift action meant he chafed against the hierarchy of the civil service, and his preference for relying on his personal relationships with Casey and Menzies put him offside with those departmental secretaries who were technically his superiors. In his contest with defence and external affairs, Brooks directly complained to Menzies about the institutional rivalry. He sought the PM's intervention by asking that instead of being placed under defence, Asius should simply be directly responsible to Menzies. However, due to Watt and Tang's concern over ASIS, ASIS's use of uh, diplomatic cover, it was moved to external affairs in 1954. Another issue for Brooks was his relationship with Casey, which was initially very close. Theirs was the correspondence of two close friends, one the elder mentor to the other, and very frequently Casey turned to Brooks for policy advice on topics well outside of Brooks's purview as DG ASIS. Brooks also volunteered advice to Casey on how to engage with Casey's UK and US counterparts without consulting external affairs. In this context, Brooks would write an extraordinary letter to Casey in 1955 on his view of the ideal role of a secret service within the wider public service. Brooks argued that ASIS should be the central agency for setting national security and foreign policy. He argued that Australia needed a strong capacity to deploy economic and psychological warfare against communist-aligned states. The final straw came, however, in 1957, when Brooks took the extraordinary step of flying to Washington to meet with the US Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, and the Director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, without engaging with his external affairs and defence counterparts. Among other things, he discussed with the Dulles brothers the sensitive and politically charged issue of potentially using Australia as a base for long-range nuclear weapons. It's ambiguous how much Casey knew or approved of this engagement by Brooks. It's certainly possible Brooks was dispatched to Casey's insistence to broker the sensitive proposal without the knowledge of the wider bureaucracy. Regardless, this engagement was seen by Watt and Shedden as an irrecoverable act of roguishness. It appears that at this time, Casey also became less favourable to ASIS's operations. Brooks would explain in later years that Casey appeared to have become terrified that an ASIS agent using diplomatic cover would be exposed and that as the minister responsible, it would lead to his removal from office. In 1957, while Menzies was absent for surgery, a number of cabinet ministers, including Casey, met with Shedden and Watt and decided to abolish ASIS. 
It's not clear if Menzies' absence was directly exploited. What proceeded was a flurry of activity in Canberra, London and Washington to prevail upon Menzies and save ASIS at the 11th hour. The DG of ASIO, Colonel Charles Spry, an old friend of Brooks, argued vehemently to keep ASIS, but with important restructuring, which included the sacking of Brooks. Meanwhile, Australia's ambassador to DC, Casey's old rival Percy Spender, was informed by the US State Department of their grave concern at Australia's decision. The CIA directly lobbied Casey against the disbandment. The strongest lobbying, however, came from MI6. The vice chief of SIS, Sir James Easton, came in person to Canberra for a five-day blitz of Australia's politicians and senior public servants, and he attended to Casey personally at his farm in Berwick. The message from MI6 and CIA was that without ASIS, Australia could not expect privileged access to their top-secret intelligence. The intelligence relationship was still recovering from the Soviet infiltration of the 1940s, and a trusted Australian secret service, along with ASIO, was seen as pivotal to rebuilding trust and access for Australia. So it was that Menzies overturned his colleague's decision and ASIS was saved, but not with Brooks at the helm. So the story of Menzies' creation of ASIS 70 years ago reveals a government contending with many of the same issues concerning secret statecraft that Australia's government today still grapples with. Covert action and espionage are controversial tools of statecraft for a liberal democracy. For Menzies, they were seen as tools to find influence and advantage in a fast-changing, uncertain and hostile world dominated by the Cold War. Today, our outlook is not too dissimilar given events in the South Pacific and further afield. ASIS as a tool of British power in the Asia-Pacific and an asset for the Commonwealth adds complexity, I think, to our typical view of post-war Australian foreign policy being derivative of the Americans. The modern-day separation of intelligence and policy is very far from Brooks's view that the clandestine services, as he called them, should be at the centre of policymaking. Finally, what I hope this study of ASIS's creation shows is that studying Australia's secret statecraft is possible, and indeed it is sorely needed because today, like Menzies' time, hidden tools of shaping and understanding the world are again critical to achieving national advantage in a contested era. Thank you. of the Liberal and country parties in the 1949 election had much to do with growing popular resentment about wartime economic controls, which many people thought had gone on too long. And this was only accentuated by, as we heard yesterday, the attempt to nationalise the banks. So Menzies came to power in 1949 on a platform to dismantle as much as he could wartime controls and encourage a greater degree of free enterprise. Having come to power, the two hallmarks of the Menzies government's economic policy during the Korean War period from 1950 to about 1953 were first its full acceptance of the Keynesian principles of macroeconomic management developed in the early Menzies, then the Curtin and the Chifley years. The second aspect of his management was his pragmatism in being prepared to reintroduce some controls in the economy, including some that were contrary to the government's rhetoric and its basic political instincts. 
and the introduction in 1952 of a comprehensive regime of import licensing, which is introduced as a temporary measure, an emergency measure, actually goes on through the whole of the 1950s. And this is the most salient example of this pragmatism. And although this is going beyond the chronological scope of this conference, the real ending of the wartime era of economic controls, which go from 1940 through the 1950s, was with the abolition of import licensing in February 1960. And indeed, there are three measures that the Menzies government takes First being the 1957 Commerce Agreement with Japan. Second being the abolition of import licensing. And the third being the end of the iron ore export embargo at the end of 1960. These three measures taken together, I think, are comparable with the Hawke government's 1983 floating of the dollar in reorienting the Australian economy in a more open and outward direction. But going back to the Second World War, a range of economic controls are introduced and accentuated in the Second World War. Things like export controls on butter, they were introduced to make sure there's enough butter to be exported to the United Kingdom. And that in turn meant rationing of butter for Australian consumers. Import controls were also introduced early in the Second World War and they're kept in the period after 1945 for dollar imports. And of course, during this period of the 1940s and through the 1950s, sterling, the pound sterling, is not readily convertible into the dollar. And the shortage of dollars means that there has to be rationing of certain dollar goods. And in no area was rationing more resented than petrol. So just by way of background, at the end of the Second World War, Britain comes out of the Second World War virtually bankrupt and has to go cap in hand to America to borrow $3 billion to keep its economy going. The Australian wartime experience was much more favourable because we had a good war in terms of benefiting from Lend-Lease from America and benefiting from the spending of American soldiers in Australia, which means that we build up our reserves and unlike in the First World War, we come out of the Second World War with no debt, but rather with our international reserves enhanced. But Britain, on the other hand, has to borrow from America and accept conditions that the Americans impose, one of which is to make sterling convertible with the dollar by 1947. The British do that with disastrous consequences for their economy, and they've got to rapidly reinstate measures to stop that convertibility. Two years later, the British economy is still suffering a shortage of dollars, and in those circumstances, Britain devalues the pound, and Australia follows suit. And Britain also institutes, again, rationing of petrol and asks Australia to do the same. So Chifley is asked by the British government to do that, and he agrees to do it. And I think this is really the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of the coming election. Menzies promises not to introduce this rationing. He believes, as it proves rightly, that Australia doesn't need to have this rationing. He goes on to win the election in 1949. And ironically, Menzies reverses the situation in 1940 
when Menzies had introduced petrol rationing as a wartime measure and Curtin had criticised that and benefited from it. So having won the election in 1949, he successfully, Menzies, does not ration petrol. Also, he goes to America in mid-1950 on a significant mission. This is uh, just a photograph that illustrates the petrol rationing issue of 1949. But Menzies goes to America, amongst other things, to try to borrow large amounts of American dollars from America. And the World Bank agrees to this. This is a real coup for Menzies. He, he gets the World Bank, called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, to lend Australia $100 million, the largest ever loan extended by the World Bank to that time to Australia. And this enables Menzies to overcome some of the difficulties of the dollar shortage by being able to use the dollars to import valuable dollar goods, things like agricultural machinery and other important items, which helps Australia in turn to beef up its agricultural production. Mid-year, just as Menzies goes to America, the Korean War breaks out, and this poses a significant challenge to the Menzies government's objective of progressively dismantling the controlled economy. As the government commits Australian forces to the Korean War, Menzies is also preparing to send another expeditionary force to the Middle East in the event that a global war breaks out. So in December 1950, with a global war looking possible, he sets up a National Security Resources Board to help advise the government about balancing the civil and military economy. And one of the things that comes out of this is that on the advice of the Treasury and the National Security Board, the government reintroduces capital controls under the Defence Preparations Act. Now, by early 1951, we're in the midst of a, a wool boom in Australia. This wool boom comparatively was bigger than the mining boom of the 2000s in terms of the terms of trade, which means the amount of things that you could buy for a given amount of imports. So there's an incredible increase in the price of wool, a lot of currency coming into the country, people are spending more, and that puts pressure on inflation. So with inflation ramping up, and Menzies has promised to, amongst other things, try to restore value to the pound, the government introduces the horror budget of 1951. It's called the horror budget because it was a brave political step to increase taxes and reduce spending. So the Commonwealth Bank raises interest rates and Treasurer Arthur Fadden runs a budget surplus. Now, historian Greg Whitwell, who's written a major book about the Treasury, has described this budget as an event of major significance in Australia's budgetary history, for the budget represented the first explicit use of fiscal policy for anti-cyclical purposes. The budget was Keynesian in practice, principle and spirit, and openly so. And Menzies and his government benefits from the top-level officials in Treasury, led by Roland Wilson from 1951, and others like Richard Randall and younger officers such as John Stone, who joined later. Now, one bad consequence of the wool boom for the Menzies government is... America's now in the Korean War, 
and it's having to clothe its troops with woolen garments, which, and it has to pay a higher price for wool. So in the second half of 1950, the Truman administration asked the Australian government to suspend wool auctions. And later, it wants to introduce an international scheme to allocate wool. Now, this really poses major problems for the Australian government. So wool is our major export. We export about 85% of our production of wool, and wool accounts for more than half of our external income. So this is a really detrimental measure that the Americans are proposing or asking Australia to do, just as Australia is trying to negotiate the ANZUS Treaty. So it's a delicate task that the Menzies government has to navigate. And what happens is that John McEwen, who's the Minister for Commerce and Agriculture, and his Departmental Secretary, John Crawford, helped the government to resist successfully that request by America. So they're able to delicately handle it, to persuade the Americans not to do it, and at the same time go ahead and negotiate the ANZUS Treaty. But just as you have this extraordinary wool boom in 1950-51, you have then in late 1951 a precipitate dropping of the price of wool. that goes up in a tremendous way and then drops precipitately. And that means that you have much less international reserves. They're being exhausted at a rapid rate because Australians are spending more money buying more imports. And it looks as though it might even be the case that our overseas reserves may be entirely exhausted. Now, these are the days not of floating exchange rates like we have now. Under the Bretton Woods Agreement, exchange rates are fixed. Australia's already devalued once in 1949. It doesn't want to do it again. So what can the government do? It can't risk its overseas reserves being depleted. It doesn't want to devalue. What it does is it goes back to wartime precedent and looks at the import licensing that had been introduced during the Second World War and decides to reintroduce it in 1952 cross-the-board import licensing that applies to all imports. Now, as I said, regarded as a temporary expedient, but it ends up lasting for the whole of the 1950s. And it's really essential for the Menzies government's economic management because the narrow or relatively narrow basket of exportable commodities, things like wool, wheat, meat, are limited firstly they're subject to seasonal variations. They're also subject to changes in prices. They're also, in cases like wheat, subject to unfair competition from countries like the European countries and from the US in a way which introduces in 1954 a measure to help developing countries by giving them subsidised wheat. So all these things means that Australia introduces import licensing in 1952 and then has to continue it right throughout the 1950s. It's managed by the Department of Trade and Customs, one of two trade departments, and, as I said, lasts right through the 1950s. I know we're pressed for time. I'll just conclude with a number of observations about import licensing. So it's run by the Department of Trade and Customs between 1952 and 1956. Then the Menzies government decides to create a Department of Trade by merging commerce and agriculture and trade and customs. Why does he do that? He wants to put 
one of his most capable ministers, probably the most capable after Menzies, in charge of import licensing. Of course, it's such an important job. Previously, it had been managed by the Minister for Trade and Customs. Secondly, he wants John Crawford, the Departmental Secretary, to be the public servant administering the scheme. So they take it on from 1956 and they keep it going until 1960. In 1960, Harold Holt wants to get rid of import licensing because inflation's having an uptick again. He wants to get rid of licensing to soak up the inflation and he thinks we're ready for the end of licensing. Crawford says, no, that's too fast, that's too precipitate, be cautious, don't move so fast. But Holt and the Cabinet decide that they're going to do this and go ahead with it and take a leap in the dark. Having taken this leap in the dark, it doesn't go so well because there's a balance of payments blowout and then Menzies and his cabinet have to introduce the credit squeeze measures, putting taxes up, etc., putting interest rates up to balance the external account. And that produces, for the first time since 1949, significant unemployment and almost causes the defeat of the Menzies government in 1960. But really, the Menzies government's able to successfully, in the end, getting rid of import licensing for a number of reasons, one of which is the mining boom, which kicks off in 1960 because of Menzies' bold measure to get rid of the export embargo on iron ore. And these measures institute a new sort of more open era in the Australian economy. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from the presenters at our 2022 conference on this summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast at the Robert Menzies Institute. To hear more from the Robert Menzies Institute, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Thank you.